Election Studio on Cambridge 105 Radio. But less than 48 hours away from what's been called the Brexit election. I'm Julian Clover. Welcome to Election Studio, your next MP. This morning we'll hear from the Labour candidate in Cambridge, Daniel Seichner. Uh, prior to the dissolution of Parliament, he was uh, MP for Cambridge since 2015. That's four years ago, and this is election number three. Good morning, Daniel. Uh, welcome to Cambridge 105 Radio and Election Studio. Good morning, and it's very nice to be here. Uh, thank you. Um, I think most of our interviews have uh, started with the B word. Is this the Brexit election? Well, it was, but I think it's becoming the NHS election. And quite right too, because that appalling image um, on the front page of the newspapers of that poor boy having to sleep on the floor in a hospital, if it was an exceptional incident, um, it would still be tragic. But the sad truth is... Um, this is where our NHS now is. And I think for most people, the issue of their local hospital um, is actually key and crucial, and I'm hearing that more and more on the doorstep. But we do get these stories every every year. There's a crisis in the health service, and we know that the good people at Anbrooks and other hospitals around Cambridgeshire and around the country, they work incredibly hard, and yes, they are up against it. But it, it kind, kind of feels that it's in one area there's a problem. And you speak to somebody else and they'll say, oh, I had fantastic care. People do get very good care, but because of no illusion, they need a government that's on their side. And I'm afraid this government, when you look at the things it's done, I'm um, scrapping the nursing bursary scheme. I was with um, hundreds of students at Anglia Ruskin a few years ago, and they were explaining to me exactly why scrapping that bursary scheme wouldn't work. But of course the government took no notice. Now, some years on, huge shortages in terms of numbers of nurses across the National Health Service. So this isn't just the the continuing problem that's been in the past. This is a new problem created by the government and then added to by things that most people will be totally unaware of this. But many of our nurses and doctors and staff in the health service come from other countries and they now have to pay extra, the immigration surcharge, health surcharge, they have to pay extra on top of the taxes they're paying to live here. So it's a whole range of things that this government has done I was looking, made it worse. Yeah, I was looking at the list, actually, and I'm, I'm trying to recall exactly where the, the top five countries other than the uh, other than the UK, of course, are start from. And uh, I seem to call Philippines was, was quite high. Um, Ireland, of course, a supplier, um, people and nurses and doctors crossing over for, for, for some time. But also, as you'd expect, places like Poland as well. And I wonder there is potentially a recruitment issue and a retention issue as well going on. There's, there are huge issues around this. And um, the idea, the nonsense we've heard over the last few years around, around the Brexit debate that somehow we'll be fine on our own in the future is so wide of the mark. We desperately need people um, from all around the world to come and help us with our public services. And rather than demonising them, we should be celebrating and them. And demonised? What, what way do you think they're being demonised? Oh, I think if you talk to people, particularly people from the EU, of course, um, the number of times I've heard in my surgeries or when I'm talking to people, um, and this is sometimes people who fully expected to spend the rest of their lives here, quite often p- maybe a partner or married to someone um, who is a, uh, 
uh, of UK origin saying, I don't feel welcome here anymore. And it's, it's tragic. And this has all been done. And I'm afraid the whole Brexit debate started with an argument within the Conservative Party. And we've all paid a huge price for the Conservatives' preoccupation with their own internal arguments rather than thinking about the good of the country. And the NHS is, I'm afraid, yet another one of the victims of that. I mentioned at the start of the programme, as uh, <laughs> journalists and uh, candidates are all too aware, that we've had something like three elections mm. over the period of, of four years. I, I noticed you were just one of 20 MPs who voted against the general election. I, I wonder why, what your, for, your reasoning for, was. For a number of reasons, and I think the, the biggest applause at the hustings on Sunday um, was when I said we wouldn't have elections in December in future. But two or three reasons. The most important one was I'm an absolute Remainer, through and through. And much of my work over the last few years has been trying to find a way of keeping us in the European Union. And that's out of passion myself, but also to reflect the view of this city. Now, a number of us have worked in Parliament for the last two years, cross-party, fighting and fighting and fighting. Some of the votes were nail-bitingly close, one or two, but we've kept that flame alive. And we've got to a position with Johnson as Prime Minister where he was trapped... He was like a boxer on the ropes. And basically, a month ago, we had him cornered and we were very close to getting the people's vote, the referendum that so many of us have marched for. And it's so infuriating that it was, I'm afraid it was the SNP and the Liberal Democrats who pushed for an early election and effectively let him off the ropes. Now, I didn't think we should have done that. I think we should have kept him in his corner, cornered. So I think it was wrong to have the election. I also think, actually, now I'll pay credit here to um, some of my opponents, I think the Fixed-Term Parliament Act was a good idea. I don't think Prime Ministers should be able to call, be able to call elections. It seems that MPs can, MPs can sort of vote it down or throw it out by some mechanism or another, because mm. in Fixed-Term Parliament Act, we've still had uh, two or three elections since it was brought in. Well, we have, and of course this goes to the heart of the question of, what, of Britain not having a, a formal constitution in the way that other countries do. But if you think about it, if the local council decided, well, we seem to be doing pretty well, I think we'll have an election next week, everyone would think, well, that's absurd. You know, what, that's not fair. And you, you, I mean, if Donald Trump wanted to call an election next week, he couldn't do it because the Americans have a constitution which says, you know, you, there, there will be fixed terms. And I actually think we have to do you think find that, would, that, that in, that would force Parliament to work together more if there was no choice but to serve out the entire term? Would that in, inevitably lead to more cooperation simply because the country wouldn't stand for it? Well, these are, these are difficult questions. Um, in a sense... For a number of years, we had many people remarking that the, the government is much too strong within our system and that shifting power away from the government towards Parliament would would deal with that democratic deficit. Um, sadly, what, it, what we've seen again is a government um, can still bully its way through and over, overcome the will of Parliament. Um, I personally, from what I've seen, I think the balance is better if Parliament is stronger. Okay. Now, I noticed, I mentioned uh, voting against the idea of election. I recall that when you were um, a shadow transport minister, you resigned then as well. And that was, or resigned at that point, uh, because of you wanted to back an amendment on the European single market, which was, if you like, showing your European credentials. But I, equally, I wonder if you, you know, when you entered Parliament, did you, did you see yourself as a potential rebel in that way? 
Well, I, I've probably always had a rebellious streak. Um, I'm, I'm a very loyal Labour Party person. I, I didn't go into Parliament to rebel against my party. Um, but the Europe issue, I mean, it, it partly is personal. Um, I, my first vote... Um, as a youngster, was in the first European Union referendum. So 1975, that would have been. It was, yeah, and um, I voted then for us to be in. Um, you can tell from my from my name, I got an Austrian father. Um, my English grandfather fought at Passchendaele in the First World War, and I remember him as a child having lost a leg. And for me, the key thing of the European Union is not actually some of the economic and uh, and collaboration and research things important though they are. I fundamentally believe the European Union has kept the peace in Europe. Mm. And I think for, for people who have families who suffered on in, in every part of that conflict, um, the, the fact that I, my generation, our generation, has not had to go to war is a fantastic benefit, which sadly didn't get much remarked mm. upon during the, during the referendum debate a few years ago. Now, I know when you resigned as Transport Minister, there were, I think, 49 um, other Labour MPs which voted against, I think it was an order to abstain mm. at that point. I wonder if that also showed a split in Labour over Europe, really, because you, you've always mm. been clear mm. to, to myself, to other interviewers, to, to Cambridge as a whole. But we've always had this sort of question, if you like, about the Labour leadership, particularly Mr Corbyn, when it comes to where he stands or not on Europe. Well, there is, in some ways it's very easy for me because I'm a passionate Remainer in a city that voted essentially almost three quarters Remain. I have to say, I have some quite difficult conversations with the quarter of the population that voted Leave. Just just yesterday I was talking to people. Because who, we do forget there are people who voted Leave in Cambridge. And, and they should absolutely um, be respected in their views. And I try and... and and treat people with respect and, and ask them what it is they actually want to change. And that's an interesting conversation sometimes. I have had people who are Labour supporters who are saying they're not sure what to do because... They, and do you find that those Labour leavers are in a particular part of Cambridge or are they are they spread across oh no, it's, the city? It's, it, it's very clear, the demographics here, um, in what one might call more traditional working class communities, in some ways it reflects exactly what's happening across the country. And what that and what has struck me is So there would be Arbury, King's Hedges, that kind of North kind Cambridge, of area. North okay. Cambridge much more, absolutely. Um, and what I've asked people, and I've, I've had some robust conversations, as you can imagine. In fact, I set myself off in the summer to go and do this because I felt it was important. Um, what's interesting is the big thing that people say is not actually about Europe at all. It's that they feel that there was a vote and it's not been respected. And that tells me something different about this debate. I've, I've never felt it was, it was much about the European Union. What I think has happened is that in the country as a whole and in this city... We're a very divided country, and whole swathes of people feel that they're disregarded, not listened to, left behind. So it's a democracy like. issue in many ways. I th well, no, actually, I think underpinning it is a wealth and power issue, because actually a lot of people, even in a wonderful city like ours, do not have the, the great life that some people lead here. Cambridge is regularly described as the most divided city in the country. And this, I think, is, is it in microcosm, if you like. It's the same thing happening across the country as a whole. And just going back to the Jeremy Corbyn point, because this is frequently made by Labour's opponents, as I've thought, I've thought very hard about this, particularly during the campaigns, I've had this conversation probably thousands of times now. 
What struck me was that the part of the problem with the 2016 referendum was it became a kind of vote of a back me or sack me vote for David Cameron. So actually a lot of the people who voted leave were voting a whole range of things, including not liking David Cameron and George Osborne very much. Now, I have quite a lot of sympathy with that, but the trouble with referenda is they can often end up being a vote where people are voting on a whole range of things other than the question. So actually, I actually think Jeremy Corbyn's position is quite astute, because if we have a referendum in six months and Corbyn has been Prime Minister, my guess is, it, it, as with all governments, um, there will be people who don't like him. Um, and at that point, I don't want the question to be about Corbyn. I want it to be about our place in Europe. So standing aside and saying, I will respect the outcome, the result, is not a weak position. I think it's actually a rather strong, sensible position. And one of the things that struck me through this campaign is the contrast between the extraordinary behaviour of, of Johnson, just appalling, including yesterday stealing a journalist's phone because he didn't, like, didn't want to look at a picture of that four-year-old boy. The extraordinary behaviour of Johnson. And actually... Um, a quite sensible, strong um, leadership from, from Jeremy Corbyn, who has not got phased by the relentless and vile criticism that's come from a whole range of the press. Your, your, refer your reference to David Cameron almost reminds me of this. I was watching The Crown the other night, and it was they uh, they showed uh, Ted Heath's or their recreation of Ted Heath's uh, famous uh, you know, who, who Runs the Country. Not you. Which, well, which the answer turned out to be Howard Wilson on that yes. particular occasion. As far as this next government is concerned. Labour, as I understand it, um, so we get an option if their Labour yep, is elected uh, between what's described as a credible leave option yep. and and remain. I just wonder if that's asking for another split, because I was just racking my brains and googling like mad to try and find who amongst the Labour front benches might, might go off and campaign against. And I, I came up with Rebecca Long-Bailey from one of her quotes, a Salford constituency is 53% leave. But even then I'm not entirely convinced that that would be her position. She, you know, she didn't seem to be entirely certain at this point. Well, I can't speak for others, but what I, what I can tell you is my sense is that the Labour Party as a whole is overwhelmingly for Remain, as borne out, in fact, by the votes in Parliament. I mean, I have to say, I, I laughed the other day when I, I read a piece of literature came through my door saying that I'd failed to stop Brexit. I mean, part of the fact we're still in the European Union, I um, don't know whether they noticed that, um, but also, when you look at it, it's Labour votes throughout, whipped Labour votes, whipped by Jeremy Corbyn to keep us in. But you don't think, that one of the things I, I sometimes look, you know, us two, because me sitting in a radio studio and you having been our, our technically former MP at this mo moment in time, we're in touch. We know near enough what's happening around us. There are people who don't listen to local radio, neither us or anybody else, who don't read a local paper, and they might look at the Labour Party as a whole as opposed to your record, and that's how they vote in Cambridge on Thursday. Oh, absolutely right, and that's why um, this is a complicated election. Um, you're right, people kind of who are, who are almost like not in the Westminster bubble, but the kind of the following politics bubble, are a minority. And it is very striking, and it's actually very um, refreshing for me um, to go out and find that the vast majority of people are not thinking about this, they're thinking about Christmas um, and getting on with their lives, and that's as it should be in many ways. So, yep, um, and I, part of my task is to explain to people that some of the easy things that are being offered, um, particularly by, by some of my opponents, aren't likely to be turned into reality. Frankly, there's a choice on Thursday 
for people who want to remain in the European Union, you can cast a protest vote, which I would characterise as the vote for the Liberal Democrats, or you can cast a vote for a party that actually can keep us in the European Union. Because I don't see how the Liberal Democrats can do it. They took this gamble at the beginning and said we're going to have a, this, this election now. Jo Swinson started off saying, you know, she's going to be Prime Minister, win 326 seats. Well, of course that's theoretically possible. Just as if I stand on the starting line with Usain Bolt, it is theoretically possible at the start we're going to, I'm going to finish ahead of him. But I just don't think it's likely. It's not credible. And she's also said she won't work with Labour. So I don't see any route to remain by voting Liberal Democrat, but absolutely with Labour, because I and others, and it's part of that, the reason I resigned my shadow ministerial post, was to be able to put, argue and argue and argue within the party and in Westminster. And I'm delighted that Labour's position, albeit, it, in my view, took too long to get there, is very clear, cast-iron guarantee that we get the people's vote. OK, right, we'll put Brexit to one side as, as if that were possible uh, for the final ten minutes or so of our conversation. Would privatisation help local bus services in Cambridgeshire? Um, not, certainly not privatisation. Um, pub- sorry, <laughs> nationalisation. Well, My um, brain is failing uh, today. Don't, don't, don't worry, Julian, it gets to all of us after a while. Um, well, we've seen the privatised bus experiment, haven't we? And, you know, £2.80 costs me to get from the railway station to where I live in Victoria Road. Where you've got a managed um, a franchise system in London, you can get from one side of London to the other for £1.50. That's the kind of bus service I want. So my view is privatisation has failed. And I'm But how do we do that? Do we say to Stagecoach and Whippet and any others, do we say, sorry, you're, um, you're, you're now nationalised? Or, or do we say, um, right, we're going to be bringing in a new council-run or state-run, publicly-run bus company across in its place? I'll try and keep it simple because I'm a bus fanatic and I was Shadow Buses Minister, so basically I'd like to see the London model offered to the whole country. And, of course, we are slightly unique in Cambridge. So a, a transport for Cambridgeshire or, or whatever we, we well, end up we, being we actually, we actually have a mayor who who has the ability to run, to, to basically introduce a system... He's a Conservative like mayor, system. so I suspect he wouldn't be too keen. Well, strangely enough, because a lot of us have pushed it very hard, the, the preparatory work is being done. Now, it's, it's too complicated um, at the moment. It's taken Manchester two or three years to get close to doing it. I think it needs to be simplified. And I also think we ought to give councils the opportunity as they wish, to actually run their own bus services. You go to Ipswich, the council is one of the few that still does, but if you look at the best-performing bus services in the country, there are places like Reading, which has always kept its own bus services. So the answer to the question, does privatisation work, is, yes, it works for their shareholders, they take the money out, I think it should be spent on the transport system. Uh, would you envisage a system, I know this happens a little bit in Cambridgeshire, where the council says, well, we really need this bus route, and they do a little tender system amongst the, the, the bus companies. Um, w- yeah, w- but the, does that system work? Well, the, well, no, it doesn't, because when you look at it, over the years, the council's had less and less money, so more and more routes get removed. I mean, the kind of things it gives you is a chance to plan a proper system rather than just allow the bus companies to run the most popular routes at the most popular times. If you're asking people to move out their cars, it's no good saying to them, well, you can't travel after 7 o'clock. So the whole system of cross-subsidy, which is what's needed to run a, a proper integrated system, can't be run just for profit. So Basically, it's not just publicly run buses, it's, it's more buses, which arguably the private operators could could bring in if they if they chose, but clearly they're... 
they're not wanting to run buses with, well, as they perceive it, two or three people on. No, no one wants to run buses with just two or three people on. What we want to do is have a... And the thing is, that none of this is... So you look at other European countries, they r- manage to run their systems much better so that people can reliably use them, as you can in London. Most people in London do not do not try and drive around London. It'd be a very foolish thing to do. They use the buses and they use the underground. Now... Okay, we, I think we may be some years off having an underground system in Cambridge, but reliable buses um, would be transformational in this city. So I think we can do it, but it's a, it's a very it's a big change. But just a couple of things I'd finish on. It allows you to do things as Labour has promised to introduce free bus travel for the under-25s, which I think would be very welcome for a lot of young people. On, on semi-related matter, rail, I, I know, and, and against roads, um, I know you've had discussions to cancel the Oxford Cambridge Expressway yes. in, in in favor of a, a better a better rail route in in its in its place to uh, to to link the two cities yes and this has been actually a, a, I spent a lot of time on this over the last few years um i think and some of the senior people involved in these discussions have been saying building a massive road between Oxford and Cambridge is a very last century solution when we're trying to tackle climate change. When we got close to the interview, end of the interview, and I haven't mentioned I mean, this actually even more than maybe than Brexit and, and the NHS is the really, really big issue which we need to address. How do and you perceive the actions of, of the climate change protesters? Are, are Extinction Rebellion... I'm, I'm Do it, doing a good job. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled with particularly the lead the children have taken. I mean, it's been fantastic in Cambridge. The, the the Fridays, inspired by Greta Thunberg, Extinction Rebellion. Yes, I think they have done a good job. I think sometimes they just need to be mindful of um, losing public support. They they seem to be moving towards. Well, there was the incident in London, I think, on the Docklands yeah. Light Railway, for example. And you you don't. Want Cambridge City centre daubed with red paint on a regular basis either, do you? No, and these things are difficult because these are these are volunteers, they're people who are passionate about these subjects and um, uh, I think they have sometimes had difficulties in the sense of, of one or two of their people may well be wanting to do things which others would choose not to do, so it's difficult. But broadly and overall, I would say it, it has been transformational in lifting the consciousness, not just of the public, but the, the politicians as well, to make the kind of commitment. And the, the, the kind of thing we can do by cancelling the Oxford-Cambridge um, expressways, we can transfer those resources we would have spent on a major road onto things like, um, for instance, I mean, I'm very passionate about electric bikes. But, you know, in Germany last year, they sold a million electric bikes. In this country, 60,000. Now, a city like Cambridge... It, it's it's such a no-brainer, but they're too expensive. So Labour will use the money that we would have would have been spent on that road to give a subsidy of £200 per, per electric bike, which begins to make them more affordable for people. So there are real choices here, and Labour's choices are going to be very, very different from the current government's. Now, we've got a number of private schools in the city, the Lays, the Purse. Um, are you thankful that your party stepped away from closing them all? Well, I had a very interesting um, uh, experience where I was summoned into the headmaster's study, effectively, a couple of months ago, to explain um, Labour's policy. It was a very constructive and interesting morning. Long time since I've been summoned for the headmaster, but it felt just as... You, just, you went to, was it Whitcliffe uh, School in, uh, in, in, in Surrey? Well, there was a very strange mix of schools there, and um, 
the school I went to had been paid for effectively by the Whitgift Centre, which some people may know was the first shopping centre in the country, which effectively meant that it was it was essentially cheaper for the local authority to send people there than to put them in their own school. So, so you're telling me you went to a private school by accident? <laughs> well, um, essentially, yes. <laughs> um, but it was a very good school, and I wish every school had been like that. But um, I, I think I understand why... Um, a lot of Labour activists at the party conference feel furious about it. Because I do too, because when you look at the, at the situation we've got in Cambridge, we've got Hills Road and Long Road, which are colleges, brilliant colleges. They end up paying VAT at the moment, and the private schools 100 yards away don't pay VAT. And when you look at the money that uh, that Hills and Long Road get, probably about £4,000 per pupil, and you look at the £18,000 fees. There's something wrong there. Well, I think the idea is that you you pay VAT, the, or you put that on the on the, uh, on the the private schools, but it might help to just take it off of the public schools. That would ease, ease their costs well, uh, on, on the budget. Um, absolutely. A more rational system in general would be sensible. But uh, when, when people stand back and ask, and it goes right back to the, the beginning question, really, why are we such a divided society? Why have we got the Brexit schism? And most commentators who have looked at this um, conclude that it's the the divided nature of our education system that underpins all this. And I just think the answer, ultimately, is to have good schools for everybody, which means people will not wish to choose to spend huge... And I quite understand the parents who say to me, I'm making a huge um, sacrifice. I had exactly that conversation on the doorstep the other day. But my answer is, I want our schools to be good enough so that everyone... As with our national mm. health service, there is everyone will also choose danger if you start shutting public, uh, uh, private schools, then the the pupils end up in an already o- overpressured public system. Uh, yeah, but I, th- I think actually, when you look at the numbers, that's that's not such a problem. I think basically at the heart of this is what kind of society do we want to live in? And I want to live in a society where our public services are good enough more than good enough, if you like, for everyone to choose to use them so that we don't end up with the, the kind of divisions that we've got that have led to the unhappiness and the mess that we're in at the moment. And that's the fundamental difference, I suppose, between the parties. The Conservative Party will always go for tax cuts, squeezing public services and essentially keeping a divided society. They do a very good job on um, keeping wealthy people wealthy, which allows them to own newspapers, to pour out the, the vile propaganda we're seeing in the last few days. Um, you know, they do it very well. Labour has spent a century um, trying to tackle that inequality of, in terms of uh, the divisions of wealth and power. And I, I, I'm thrilled that we may be 48 hours from having a transformation in our country that, um, that I've spent my whole life looking forward to. Well, people will make their judgment on Thursday, uh, a couple of days away. Daniel Zeichner, thank you very much for joining us on Election Studio. I should remind everyone uh, that there are eight candidates in all standing in Cambridge. They are Jeremy Caddick for the Green Party, Wad Cantrell for the Lib Dems, Peter Dorr for the Brexit Party, Keith Garrett for Rebooting Democracy, Miles Hurley, the Independent, Russell Perrin, Conservative, Jane Robbins, Social Democratic Party, and Daniel Zeichner, you've heard there from the Labour Party. Uh, You will be able to hear from Daniel and all the other candidates online with one more candidate to do here tomorrow. That is Ian Solemn, who is standing for the Lib Dems in South Cambridgeshire. Tim and Liz are coming up next. I will see you tomorrow for Cambridge Breakfast with Lucy Malazzo starting at 7. Good morning. Cambridge 105.